Amen. You may be seated. Do you realize how few Americans know that truth? More and more all the time. They don't have a clue that our God reigns. They have no idea there's a king over the universe. They have no idea that they have been created by an almighty God and that they are living as subjects of his and great blessing would come to them if they just get in step with his program. Say, oh, almighty God, I know you've created all things. You've created me. I know that I've fallen far short of what you desire for me. And yet I've heard, I've heard that you sent your own son to die on the cross for me, for my sins, and I ask you, forgive me and make me a child of God. Oh, what a, what a marvel if a hundred million Americans would pray that prayer this afternoon. Those who have been saved, they'd just pray it again. And those who've been saved and wandered away would pray it as a renewal. And those who haven't had a clue up until this moment, they'd just pray that prayer. And what a difference Monday would bring. What a difference in this country from coast to coast, from top to bottom, there would be an awesome alteration. And so let us pray that more and more of our fellow Americans pray to God and declare he reigns over their life, and they desire that. Let's us do that right now. Heavenly Father, we're about to open this, uh, this amazing book. It contains the Word of God, and the very Spirit who inspired it is filling this room with his presence. And he is eager to teach us and guide us and thrill us and inform us and prepare us, ready us, maybe even make us part of answering the very prayer that we would have for this nation. Oh, may the authority of God be acknowledged by every single citizen of this land. May the churches in this land demonstrate they're living under your authority and get rid of all of the stuff that they can get caught up in. To simply say, our God reigns. Our God reigns. We acknowledge that and we bow before him and we wait on his directions day by day, moment by moment. May every congregation in this country be blessed filled, altered, and as a result, effective. Beginning with this one right here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we are actually doing what I said last week we might do. And that is stay on schedule. When we started the book of Revelation, I said the Holy Spirit had really stirred me with 22 hope-generating revelations in this book, that it's a book to stir hope in our heart, not just questions in our brain. Last week, we had hope-generating revelation number 21, and that meant there was only one to go, which would be number what? Very good. Today, we're doing 22, and it's actually the last. It is the last. We're going to have to touch on two chapters here. But both these last two chapters come under kind of a a singular heading. 
Then next week we'll sort of wrap things up and see what we have gained from this study. And, and to tell you the truth, as is almost always the truth of me over all these years, I don't know what I'm going to preach next. Every now and then you come up to me when we get done with a preaching series, you say, well, I can't wait to see what you do next. And I say, me neither. <laughs> can't wait to see. Sometimes it's halfway through the week before the first message has to be preached. So I am not one of those guys that lays out a five-year preaching plan. I'm not somebody who reads through a Bible book and prepares 30 outlines ahead of time and says, when, when I get to that, I'm all ready to go. I just know what we're in right now. And I know what we're in right today. And today, we come to the 22nd and final hope-generating revelation given to the Apostle John. That is at least the final one we're going to talk about. Remember, these revelations were given to John by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a little bit differently from the way other Bible books were created. As Peter tells us, holy men of God spoke, wrote, as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation, Jesus himself revealed to John the Apostle. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and so it came kind of from master to disciple directly. So as we've been going through it, we've discovered that it, it's actually filled with hope, as is the entire Bible. And the darker the day, the more valuable the book can be, because that's when we need hope. We've looked at 21 revelations, things revealed to John that can stir hope in the heart of a believer. Today we look at the 22nd. And as soon as I read it, the hope it contains will be obvious. Now, you know what that means. If I say it's obvious, that means every one of you should get it as soon as I read it, right? So that means I could probably call on any of you and say, so what's the hope here? So, get ready. That's as bad as calling on somebody to pray in a small gathering, isn't it? Okay, here we go. We're going to read it. Here it is. I'd say it's the ultimate hope of all those who know the Lord and who are called by his name. So here it is. Hope generating revelation number 22. It's the revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, does that automatically seem a little hopeful? Does it? Does it say things are going to get better? In fact, someday things are going to be awesome. John got a glimpse of it. A revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, here's the key scripture that we're going to focus on immediately, but then we'll, we'll look at some other verses in chapter 21 and also sneak a peek into chapter 22 a little bit, but here's the main passage. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea or ocean. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. See, we just saying, oh Lord, you're beautiful. On a day like this, the Lord's going to turn that around and say, you are too. You are too. I saw. The new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. So it's personal here. There's people involved here. 
beautifully dressed <clears throat> for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he, that is God, will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'd be the father, I am making everything new. Then he said to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Is that not true of every word in the Bible? Given to us by God, it's trustworthy and it's true. And the Father specifically says, and what I've just said, and what I'm about to say, you write it down because these also are trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. Even if it takes a thousand years or two thousand years before it starts to unfold, it will be true to come. It will be as I say. Now, elements of this revelation, I mentioned are sort of scattered through chapter 21 and chapter 22. And as we look at them in a larger passage, I want to share with you today six things. Out of this ultimate revelation, six things God wants us to know. Think you can remember them when I get done? You could get, if you have a family of six, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's seven in a row back there, kind of all related together. If each one of you just says, I'm going to take one, then when you get home after church, you can, uh, you'll have all six, as long as you remember the one. Some of you, uh, Alan and Carrie, you'll have to take three apiece and see if you can rehearse it afterwards. Some of you who might be here by yourself, hey, the whole six, you're going to have to kind of keep straight. Jordan, can you help your grandparents? Okay, here we go. There's six things, though, that God wants us to know. Here's the first one. And, of course, these are presented somewhat in a Michael's style. First thing God wants us to know, the present creation has a shelf life. The old God-cursed earth will be rolled up one day. It'll be burned up. Here's how the prophet Isaiah expressed it. He said in Isaiah 34, 4, the heavens, that is what we can see around us, not the place where God dwells, but what we can see around us, the heavens, the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. Now, to a Jewish person, that had meaning. They didn't have books like we have. Everything that was written down was written on scrolls that then were rolled up, and uh, when they'd be stored, they'd kind of be stuck in a, a place where they can stand. And, and then for their holy days or just any day that they're wanting to read the word of God, they take a scroll, perhaps the scroll of Isaiah, unroll it, and they would read it. And then when they're done reading it and discussing it, they would roll it back up and stick it back where it goes. So Isaiah is using that image. He said the heavens themselves, it's like when they have served their purpose. And what is the purpose of the heavens? David said the purpose of heavens is to declare the glories of God. So when they get done declaring the glories of God in the way they're doing that, they'll just be rolled up and stuck back into the closet or wherever. 
So that's the image Isaiah had. The heavens themselves one day will be rolled up like a scroll. Here's a much more dramatic expression uh, given by the Apostle Peter. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 12. Peter says the heavens will disappear with a roar. He got a different view of it. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So Peter sees a pretty dramatic ending to this present creation. Here's the simple matter-of-fact statement from the Father that John heard and that John recorded regarding a future time. Revelation 21, 4 and 5, it just says, the old order of things has passed. So this revelation was after the fact. The Father says, you know, it's been done now. Not, I'm going to do it, but he's now saying, the old order of things has passed away. This is a look into the future. Behold, I am making everything new. So the point that we're making here is that the present creation has a shelf life. There are pagan religions that believe the, the world is eternal. And it just cycles through uh, various phases. But the world itself, the universe, is eternal. Scientists who just absolutely decry and can't even fathom there being a personal God, almost get to that same place of just, well, it's always been here. No, it's always been here. Or, or the stuff has always been here. How to figure it out? Uh, no, no. Our creation, our universe had a beginning and it's going to have an end. And the same one who started it is going to be the one who finishes it. The present creation like we said, has a shelf life. This broken, unpredictable, God-cursed world of ours that can wreak such havoc upon mankind is not going to last forever. Turn to somebody and say, praise God, this isn't going to last forever. I mean, what are we right in the middle of now? Some kind of a pandemic that has brought death to, to tens of thousands of people worldwide. In this country, 160-some thousand linked to it. This world is like that. It's a broken world. Nothing like, really, the world that God originally created. God had to curse it due to the sin of mankind. Sin has run rampant for thousands of years. The devil has taken advantage often of this world. Lives have been lost. Much pain has been experienced. God himself has been questioned as a result of the tragedies wrought by a world in turmoil. How can a God who loves anybody allow that to happen? Why doesn't God do something? This world, its brokenness, the sin that has just run rampant through it has caused people and allowed the devil to use those very circumstances to get people to doubt God. That's not the world God created. That's the world that sin has wrought and that God himself has cursed because of that sin. But you see, it's not going to go on forever. This broken, corrupted, dangerous, unpredictable world of ours will not last forever. God wants us 
to know that. Now, sometimes we try to encourage one another. Our parents tried to encourage us by letting us know that everything in life is like that. This won't last forever. You will get out of third grade. The most they'll give you is three shots at it. Then they're going to pass you right on. It won't last forever. Well, the whole thing isn't going to last forever. God wants us to know that. Don't give in to despair. When you find people who are just, you know, there's more to the story than what the newspapers are telling you today. There is a future ahead of us. There is a difference ahead of us. There is a plan that is being revealed and being worked out. And God wants us to know that. Here's a second thing in this passage that God wants us to know. He wants us to know that since this present world, this present creation has a shelf life, a new heaven and a new earth will be brought into being. A new heaven and a new earth. You see, destruction of this old earth is not all that God has planned. Well, sometimes we think that is the whole plan. There's coming a day God will destroy this world. We've kind of known that. And maybe we just think, and then we'll praise God, we'll be in heaven forever. But this old world will, will be gone, and sin will be gone, and the problems will be gone. But destroying this old earth is not the whole story, and it's not all that God wants us to know. I'm sure there are many, many Christians... <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Many, many Christians who really believe they will live in heaven forever. Once they die and are taken to heaven, for all eternity we're going to be in heaven. Now, if I wait long enough, you might just say, you mean we're not? I always thought we went to heaven when we die. Well, we do go to heaven when we die. In a very special state, we go to heaven when we die. Our bodies remain in this ground. God has a more plan for them, and we're going to see here that part of God's plan is there will be a creation of a new heaven, and that really means all that's around this world, not a new place where, where uh, the celestial beings are, but the things we see with our eyes, the heavens. There'll be a new heaven. And there'll be a new physical earth brought into being. You might say, for what purpose is that? Well, we're going to find out. You see, the idea that we're going to just live in heaven forever sometimes has been troublesome. It's perhaps an idea that has even turned off many an exuberant, rambunctious boy over the years. Like when we go to heaven, we'll be sitting on a cloud playing our harps forever. I'm sure if my older brother Keith is tuned in this morning, are you Keith? He's saying to himself right now, yeah, I used to think that as a kid. Heaven seemed like it would be a pretty boring place. He's got to sit on a cloud. We'll all turn. Some people have a notion we sort of turn into angels. And we're on our fluffy little cloud and we're playing our harp and we're doing whatever heavenly people do, but good grief. Forever? 
So let's dispel that notion with these two statements from our two favorite apostles, Peter and John. Apostles whose writings we have studied extensively over the past several years. Here's the actual thing, expectation, that filled Peter's heart. 1 Peter 3.13, he said, we, we are looking forward to, what? A new heaven and a new earth. Peter was tuned into that. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's the difference. It's an earth where righteousness is the the practice, the attitude, the dominant experience. Righteousness, goodness, holiness, graciousness, godliness. It's going to be the home of that. What an earth that'll be. Peter says, I'm looking forward to that. You see, the old earth and the heavens around it is going to be replaced. There's coming a new and improved version. Righteousness and goodness will characterize it. Truly, it will be a heaven-on-earth kind of experience for all those who get to enjoy it. Now, Peter came to his own death before the new heaven and the new earth arrived. Peter came to his own death, a death that demonstrated the very brokenness of this world system. This system that was passing away, his death demonstrated that that system, however, still existed. His death was actually a martyrdom brought about by the, the Roman, the pagan Roman Empire. And I would say to you, Peter came to his death with this hope in his heart. A new day and a new world is coming and Peter believed he would be part of it. And so hope filled his heart, even as the Roman executioners were fastening him to a cross. Now, the Apostle John, Peter's much longer-lived companion, John got to see what Peter only apprehended by faith. John, in the key scripture we read this morning, says this, I saw, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Peter says there will be one, and maybe 30, 40 years later, John, thanks to the revelation of Jesus Christ directly, says, I saw it. I saw it. It was almost like I could reach out and touch it, feel it, taste it. John died with a lot more confidence, maybe even than Peter did. Peter only had the faith of it. John says, I, I saw it. Jesus showed it to me the new heaven, and the new earth. It's going to be brought into being. God wants us to know that and know that for sure. Now, here's the third thing God would want us to know. The new earth houses the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. John sees coming down from heaven, and it's an awesome city immense in size. John says there was an angel who had a ruler. I tell you, this was one heck of a ruler because he's measuring out this city that we'll read in a moment, comes down from heaven, that we already did read, that, like adorned like a bride for her husband. 
And he discovers, once you put it into English terms, this city was 1,400 miles square. A square, 1,400 miles on a side. And it was 1,400 miles tall. Now there's your skyscraper. What an immense structure. I did this just so we get some reference. Topeka, Kansas is pretty close to the middle of the United States. If you put the center of the new city of Jerusalem, if it came down from heaven and landed squarely in Topeka, Kansas, it would stretch to the south to Houston, Texas. And it would go from Houston, Texas on the south all the way up to the United States-Canadian border. So it'd be, it'd be practically as wide as the, the width of the United States. It would also go on the west from Grand Junction, Colorado. How many of you have ever been there? Grand Junction. Yeah. It's west of Denver almost to the Utah border. It would go from Grand Junction, Colorado, nearly to the West Virginia state line. That's big. That's big. Plenty of room in it. Jesus loves this city. The whole place is known as his bride. And so that's kind of a interesting twist. You know, it's like the church is the bride of Christ, people, all of us together. It's a human relationship. But then when Jesus looks at this city that is just adorned in such beauty, I would say where his bride lives, the whole place is like, that's my bride. That's my pride. That's the new Jerusalem. That's the holy city. It's populated, I believe, by his church, by all born-again people of all time who have been given eternal life thanks to his sacrifice on Calvary. And so John says, John, Revelation 21.1, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So let's just know first it's in heaven, a real tangible place in heaven. And then it comes down and it's on the new earth. There's no place on this old earth for that. But on the new earth, here it comes. And I would believe it's pretty well populated already as it comes down. A few verses later, John reports another view of this glorious city that he was given. One of the angels that had the, the bowls of the... the bowls filled with the final plagues upon mankind, one of those angels says to him, come, come with me. I will show you the bride. This is verses 9 and 10. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And John says, he took me to a high mountain where I could oversee it. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. And that's when the angel actually does the measuring and John reports how big it is. The word immense hardly does it justice. Now, reading these passages, and as you're listening to them right now, 
caused me this week to question, and it might cause you to question, is this the ultimate Father's house? Remember what Jesus told his disciples way back in the day? He said, in my Father's house are many mansions, big places. The NIV says rooms. Give me a mansion, not a room. I'd like one of your mansions, please. Even if they're rooms, I could picture them as presidential suites. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, present tense, there are many mansions, many rooms. It's a vast structure. And I go to prepare a place, place says, for you. Just kind of cut my imagination to say, well, you know, is this where, you know, when, a, when one of us dies, we go into the presence of the Lord, we go into one of those places prepared for us, might it not be in this place? And then there's coming a day where that very place comes down to the new earth. And we are all, we are all part of it. It's where we had the privilege of dwelling on this earth. Well, moving on, here now is a fourth hope-generating thing God would have us know. Here we go, both the Father and the Son. Thinking about the new earth, thinking about the new Jerusalem, this vast, vast structure that only a God could build. Both Father and Son will take up residence there. And that new Jerusalem... Didn't say necessarily they'll be there every second of uh, the rest of eternity, but it does say, Revelation 21, 22, the Lord God Almighty, the Father, and the Lamb are its temple. In that humongous city, there will be a place, a unique temple, a place where people can meet with God, a place where... Um, the worship of God, the knowledge of God, the fellowship with God can uniquely be experienced, and yet it's not going to just be one corner of the place. The Father and the Son are the temple. God the Father being a spirit would fill that entire structure at all times. Jesus being a resurrected man in a glorified body would probably be found in various places of it. But wherever they are, they are the temple because their very presence brings us into the presence of God. What an what a awesome experience. But the Father and the Son are there in some real way. The power, I believe, the power of their presence will pulsate through the entire place. A spirit of continual worship will fill the entire city. Permanent pleasure will be the experience of every resident to just know God and to know everything that knowing God brings. What, a, what an experience. What will it mean to dwell in the holy city itself as part of the bride of Christ? 
as a member of Christ's body, forever identified with him. See, can, can you put your hope in that? Could that be something to hope in and say, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when that will be my experience of living in the very presence of God in a very tangible way, not just kind of floating around in some sort of spiritual way, but something very tangible and meaningful on a brand new earth that God has created for my and others' enjoyment. And so that comes us to the fifth thing God wants us to know. Perfect fellowship between man and God will be enjoyed. Perfect fellowship. Here's what John says, verse 3 of chapter 21. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he, God, will live with them. That's what God heard, or that's what John heard the angel announce. That's what God the Father has desired from the very beginning of time. From the moment that Adam and Eve fell out of fellowship, God created them to have fellowship with him to enjoy them and they him. And sin came in and, and put a great separation between God and man. And though man can be forgiven, there's still a, there, there's still a break in what once was. And now God's going to recreate it again. Man's fallen nature will be gone it's not like us today trying to have fellowship with God. Oh, we have a new nature that loves God. We have a new nature that relates to God. We have a new nature that when we really are in tune with it, you can almost feel like, like God himself is there with you. But we all also have a fallen nature. And we have a fallen nature that rises up regularly. To put notions in our head to put feelings in our heart that do not please God, that do not advance the purposes of God, but rather give expression to some ugly part of us. And when that's happening, fellowship with God is gone. And once we get a grip on it and the Holy Spirit convicts us and we say, oh, that was wrong, Father, forgive me, and we receive cleansing, there's still the memory of it in our head. We say, how could I do that? How could I give in to that? And we berate ourselves in a way that the Father doesn't berate us because he's forgiven us, but our own nature is now to punish ourselves. We just do that. That old nature will be gone. And all the things that old nature creates will not be created any longer. And so fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit will be unbroken, will be continual, will be perfect. And we will never contend with fallenness again. And so as a result, it says, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear and every memory of a tear will be wiped away. This is brand new. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new mark. A new, a new person. A completed person. Where none of the old is, is there any longer to harass us, to bother us, to, to drag us down. The angel reported this. No sorrow or pain or suffering 
No, I would say even regret of former days. All former things will be caught up in and be made right in the fullness of all of our Abba Father's marvelous attributes. We, we, will, we will know him in, in all 30 ways we've learned to know him and in others that he will make us aware of uh, as time goes by. Now here's something else that John reports. And here we go into chapter 22. Verses 1 and 2, John says, Now the angel, this same angel, showed me the river of the water of life flowing from the throne down the middle of the great street of the city. It's kind of like one of those Italian cities. Just has a river right down. That's the street. Water. The water of life flowing right down the center of the street. The living water that Jesus himself said he was. And it's available continually. Now, those five things, have each one of you decided which one's yours to remember? Here's a sixth one. And this is something that I'm sharing with you. This is something that I believe is biblical. It doesn't really come out of this particular passage, but is implied by it, and it excites me. Here's the sixth thing I believe God would want us to know. Man was uniquely made for earth and earth for man. It has to do with our identity and our destiny. And we want to put our hope in the right thing. You see, man is not a celestial being. We are not just a slightly different form of angel. Man is a terrestrial being. God's plan is that man inhabit a recreated, perfected earth and to serve the Lord forever as the human being that he is and that God has designed him to be. We are earthlings and God is providing for an eternal opportunity for us to enjoy the very thing that he designed in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, who were not designed to die. They were to enjoy this place and enjoy fellowship with God and forever, forever. They were designed, they were made out of the dust of this ground and this is where they were to live and this is how they were to be defined. Celestial beings are celestial beings, earthly beings, human beings, and the animal life that's part of this world is uniquely part of this world. And God's going to make a, an awesome recreation of it all. And we're going to be part of it. Now, will we have opportunity to travel through the cosmos? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus could move around pretty easily in his glorified human body, but the point is, this is home. And this will always be home. And our Heavenly Father has deigned to actually dwell with us here and be our God and we be his people in a way that the, the greatest, the deepest, the, whatever the, the most joyful thing that a human being can experience, the most meaningful thing, will be ours to experience. 
We will be living as God intended human beings to live, in fellowship with him forever in a real, physical, tangible world. That's what John saw. That's what was revealed to him. That's the revelation. And so today's revelation generated hope. We just would put this way. In the new heaven and the new earth, God has provided a glorious destiny for his born-again sons and daughters. Don't say to yourself, ah, I only get to live on the earth. No. You get to live on the brand new created world that God has designed for Christ's bride, for human beings, and he dwells with them, makes himself available to them. And that's what we look forward to. That's what ultimately the book of Revelation says, hey, whatever's going on in the world, and Christians were dying like flies when this book was written. The Roman Empire was was persecuting them, destroying them. There were Jewish uh, teachers who were pursuing the Christians and seeking to, uh, to bring great harm to them. There were diseases, there were plagues, there was difficulty, there were wars, all kinds of things that this fallen world has always experienced. And Jesus said, and all those things will continue right up until the end. Those people 2,000 years ago needed some hope. Is it always going to be like this? John was given a revelation to say, no, here's what it's going to be like. Here's what it's going to be like. Put your hope in it. Put your hope in it. And for us 2,000 years later, living in a world that is less than uh, dependable, that is highly unpredictable, and that is frequently just lines up against us, as followers of Christ. Put your hope in it. God has it all under control and it's heading toward a glorious conclusion. Put your hope and wrap your heart around such a thing. Heavenly Father, you waited a long time to give the book of Revelation. And Father, the reason you waited is the reason you always wait. There's a proper time. Father, we are impressed today that you've waited a long time since the book of Revelation was given to this time today. And we see the glories of your future plan. We see the beauty of it. We can put our hopes in it and and say, I can't wait, I can't wait. Father, how impressive it is that you can. And why do you wait? Why do you wait when such a glorious future is, is right out there, already designed and planned? Is it not because your great love for the lost compels you to wait? Father, until the last soul is saved, you will hold all of this in abeyance. Father, thank you 
for not bringing an end to things in 1955. That's a year before I was saved. Thank you, Father, for those of our family and friends that you are waiting on right now, and they're going to be saved. Father, we know there comes a time where the angel says, no more delay. But Father, it's overwhelming to think how much you must love those who are lost, that you would delay the implementation of such an incredibly marvelous plan to even give you the greatest satisfaction of dwelling with your people. And so, Father, may, may your heart and your desire be fulfilled that many still would come to Christ. And Father, if you can use us to bring them, to tell them, to love them into the kingdom of God, would you do so? For we ask this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his glorious church. Amen.